12, applauded with special emphasis the words in which the President expressed his firm conviction that all efforts to disunite the Allies would prove fruitless. In the course of his address the President eloquently and eulogistically referred to the role of Russia's allies in the present war. Speaking of England, he said, Noble and mighty England, with all her strength, has come forward to defend the right. Her services to the common cause are great, their value inestimable. We believe in her and admire her steadfastness and valor. The enemies of Russia have already frequently attempted to sow discord in these good and sincere relations, but such efforts are vain. The Russian truth-loving national soul, sensitive of any display of mendacity or insincerity, was able to sift the chaff from the wheat, and faith in our friends is unshaken. There is not a single cloud on the clear horizon of our lasting allied harmony. Heartfelt greetings to you, true friends, rulers of the waves and our companions in arms. May victory and glory go with you everywhere. These remarks were constantly interrupted by outbursts of tremendous applause and by an ovation in honor of Sir George Buchanan, who bowed his acknowledgments, alluding to temperance reform. The orator fervently exclaimed, Accept, great monarch, the lowly reverence of thy people. Thy people firmly believe that an end has been put for all eternity to this ancient curse. The terrible war cannot and must not end otherwise than victoriously for us and our lives. We will fight till our foes submit to the conditions and demands which the victors dictate to them. We are weary of the incessant brandishing of the sword, the menaces to Slavdom, and the obstacles to its natural growth. We will fight till the end, till we win a lasting peace worthy of the great sacrifices we have offered to our fatherland. In the name of our electorate, we here declare, so wishes all Russia, and you, brave warrior knights in the cold trenches, proudly bearing the standard of Russian imperialism to this national outburst. Your task is difficult. You are surrounded with trials and privations. But then you are Russian, for whom no obstacles exist. A scene of indescribable enthusiasm ensued. The house rising and singing the national hymn. The president's peroration was in part as follows. The premier, in the opening sentences of the speech which followed, said, Our heroic army, the flower and the pride of Russia, strong as never before in its might, notwithstanding all its losses, grows and strengthens. He did not fail to remind his hearers that the war is yet far from ended, but he added that the government, from the first, had soberly looked the danger in the face and frankly warned the country of the forthcoming sacrifices for the common cause and also for the strengthening of the mutual gravitation of the Slavonic races. He briefly referred to the Turkish defeat in the Caucasus as opening before the Russians a bright historical future on the shores of the Black Sea. The premier alluded to the tremendous change wrought in the national life by the abolition of the liquor traffic, which he designated a second serfdom vanishing at the behest of the Tsar. After a few years of sober, persistent labor, we would no longer recognize Russia. The war had further raised the question of the creation in the world's markets of favorable conditions to the export of our agricultural products, and a general revision of conditions calculated hereafter to guarantee to Russia a healthy development on the principle of entire independence of Germany in all branches of the national life. In this direction the government had already drafted and was preparing a series of elaborate measures. He concluded with the expression of his conviction that, if all fulfilled their duty in the spirit of profound devotion to the emperor and of deep faith in the triumph of the country, the near future would open before us perhaps the best pages in Russian history. The speeches of a peasant deputy and a Polish representative were particularly impressive and well received. The socialist leader's demand for peace called forth the smart rejoinder from a member of his own party, 
Anastasia in a live speech. This afternoon the session of the Duma was opened in the presence of the whole cabinet, the members of the Council of the Empire, the diplomatic corps, and the senators. The public galleries were filled. M. Sazanov began his speech by recalling that six months ago in that place he had explained why Russia, in face of the brutal attempt by Germany and Austria upon the independence of Serbia and Belgium, had been able to adopt no other course than to take up arms in defense of the rights of nations. Russia, standing closely united and admirably unanimous in her enthusiasm against an enemy which had offered provocation, did not remain isolated, because she was immediately supported by France and Great Britain and, soon afterward, by Japan. Passing in review the events of the war, the minister said that the valiant Russian troops, standing shoulder to shoulder with their allies, had secured fresh laurels for their crown of glory. The Russian arms were marching steadfastly toward their goal, assured of final victory against an enemy who, blinded by the hope of an easy victory, was making desperate efforts, having recourse to all kinds of subterfuges, even the distortion of the truth, to the relations of good neighborliness, faithfully maintained by Russia. Germany had everywhere opposed resistance, seeking to embroil Russia with neighboring countries especially those to which Russia was bound by important interests. All this continued M. Sazanov is sufficient for us to judge the value of German statements regarding the alleged envelopment of Germany by the Triple Entente. Equally worthless are the assertions that it was not Germany who began the war, for irrefutable documents exist to prove the contrary. Among the malevolent German inventions figure reports of Jewish pogroms which the Russian troops are alleged to have organized. I seize this opportunity of speaking in the parliamentary tribune to deny this calumny categorically, for, if the Jewish population in the theater of war is suffering, that is an inevitable evil, since the inhabitants of regions where hostilities are proceeding are always severely tried. Moreover, eyewitnesses are unanimous in stating that the greatest devastation in Poland is the work of the Germans and Austrians. The German ambassador in Washington has zealously spread these reports in the attempt to create in the United States a feeling hostile to us, but the good sense of the Americans has prevented them from falling into the clumsily laid snare. I hope that the good relations between Russia and America will not suffer from these German intrigues. The Orange Book recently published proved that the events on the Bosporus which preceded the war with Turkey were the result of German treachery toward the Ottoman Empire which invited German instructors and the mission of General Lyman von Sanders, hoping to perfect its army with the object of assuring its independence against the Russian danger insinuated by Berlin. Germany, however, took advantage of this penetration into the Turkish army to make that army a weapon in realizing her political plans. All the acts of the Turks since the appearance of the Goban in the Dardanelles had been committed under the pressure of Germany but the efforts of the Turks to evade responsibility for these acts could not prevent them from falling into the abyss into which they were rolling. The events on the Russo-Turkish frontier, while covering Russian arms with fresh glory, will bring Russia nearer to the realization of the political and economic problems bound up with the question of Russia's access to the open sea. Passing to the documents relating to reforms in Armenia recently distributed among members of the Duma, M. Sazanov said, the Russian government disinterestedly endeavored to alleviate the lot of the Armenians, and the Russo-Turkish Agreement of January 26, 1914, is a historical document in which Turkey recognizes the privileged position of Russia in the Armenian question. When the war ends this exclusive position of Russia will be employed by the imperial government in a direction favorable to the Armenian population, having drawn the sword in the defense of Serbia.
Russia is acting under the influence of her sentiments toward a sister nation whose grandeur of soul in the present war has closely riveted the two countries. After referring with satisfaction to the gallantry of Montenegro in fighting as she was doing in the common cause, M. Sazanov proceeded to speak of Greece. The relations of Russia with this tried friend of Serbia, he said, were perfectly cordial, and the tendency of the Hellenic people to put an end to the sufferings of their company religionists groaning under the Ottoman yoke had the entire sympathy of the imperial government. Passing to Romania, M. Sazanov said that the relations between Russia and Romania retained the friendly character which they acquired on the occasion of the visit of the Tsar to Constanza. The constant Russophile demonstrations in Bucharest and throughout the whole country during the autumn had brought into relief the hostile feelings of the Romanians toward Austria-Hungary. He continued, You are probably waiting, gentlemen, for a reply to a question which interests the whole world, viz. the attitude of those non-combatant countries whose interests counsel them to embrace the cause of Russia and that of her allies. In effect, public opinion in these countries, responsive to all that is meant by the national ideal, has long since pronounced itself in this sense, but you will understand that I cannot go into this question very profoundly, seeing that the governments of these countries, with which we enjoy friendly relations, have not yet taken a definite decision. Now, it is for them to arrive at this decision, for they alone will be responsible to their respective nations if they miss a favorable opportunity to realize their national aspirations. I must also mention with sincere gratitude the services rendered to us by Italy and Spain in protecting our compatriots in enemy countries. I must also emphasize the care lavished by Sweden on Russian travelers who were the victims of German brutality. I hope that this fact will strengthen the relations of good neighborliness between Russia and Sweden, which we desire to see still more cordial than they are. Referring to Russo-Persian relations, M. Sizonov said, before the war with Turkey, we succeeded in putting an end to the secular Turco-Persian quarrel by means of the Delimitation of the Persian Gulf and Mount Ararat region, thanks to which we preserved for Persia a disputed territory with an area of almost 20.000 square versts, part of which the Turks had invaded. Since the war the Persian government has declared its neutrality, but this has not prevented Germany, Austria, and Turkey from carrying on a propaganda with the object of gaining Persian sympathies. These intrigues have been particularly intense in Azerbaijan, where the Turks succeeded in attracting to their side some of the Kurds in that country. Afterward Ottoman troops, violating Persian neutrality, crossed the Persian frontier and, supported by Kurdish bands, penetrated the districts where our detachments were in cantonments and transformed Azerbaijan into a part of the Russo-Turkish theater of war. I must say in passing that the presence of our troops in Persia is in no way a violation of neutrality for they were sent there some years ago with the object of maintaining order in our frontier territory, and preventing its invasion by the Turks, who wished to establish there an advantageous base of action against the Caucasus. The Persian government, powerless to take effective action against this aggression, protested, but without success. I must state that Anglo-Russian relations in regard to Persian affairs are more than ever based on mutual and sincere confidence and company operation which are a guarantee of the Pacific settlement of any eventual conflict. Passing to the Far East, M. Sazanov said the agreement signed in 1907 and 1910 with Japan had borne fruit during the present war, for Japan was with them. She had driven the Germans from the Pacific Ocean, and had seized the German base of Kiaochow. Although Japan did not sign the agreement of August 23, yet, since the Anglo-Japanese alliance contained an undertaking that a separate peace should not be concluded, 
Therefore the German government could not hope for peace with Japan before she had concluded peace with Great Britain, Russia, and France. Consequently, their relations with Japan gave them a firm friend. The demands addressed by Japan to China contain nothing contrary to our interests. As for Russo-Chinese interests, he could state their constant improvement. The pair parlors in regard to Mongolia, though slow, were friendly, and he hoped to be able to announce shortly the signature of a triple Russo-Chinese-Mongolian treaty, which, while safeguarding the interests of Russia, would not injure those of China. In conclusion, M. Sazanov expressed the hope that the close union of all Russians around the throne, which had been manifested since the beginning of the war, would remain unchanged until the completion of the great national task. Speakers of the Progressist, Octoberist, and Nationalist Center parties agreed that a premature peace would be a crime against their country and humanity, and that therefore Russia was prepared to make every sacrifice so that Germany might be definitely crushed. At the end of the sitting the following resolution was unanimously adopted, the Duma, saluting the glorious exploits of our soldiers sends to the Russian army and navy a cordial greeting and to our allies an expression of sincere esteem and sympathy. It expresses its firm conviction that the great national and liberating objects of the present war will be achieved, and declares the inflexible determination of the Russian nation to carry on the war until conditions shall have been imposed on the enemy assuring the peace of Europe and the restoration of right and justice. To the victors belong the spoils. By Madeleine L.U.C.A.D.E.R. Wiley. From King Albert's book. The victor true is he who conquers fear, who knows no time save now no place but here, who counts no cost who only plays the game, to him shall go the prize immortal fame, to the illustrious ruler and his gallant little nation, whose heroism and bravery are surely unparalleled in the whole of our world's history, I bow my head in respectful homage, lessons of the war to March 9th by Charles W. Eliot President Emeritus of Harvard University, Cambridge, Mass, March 9th. 1915, to the editor of the New York Times, the observant world has now had ample opportunity to establish certain conclusions about the new kind of war and its availability as means of adjusting satisfactorily international relations, and it seems desirable in the interest of durable peace in Europe that those conclusions should be accurately stated and kept in public view. In the first place, the destructiveness of war waged on the scale and with the intensity which conscript armies the new means of transportation and communication, the new artillery, the aeroplanes, the high explosives, and the continuity of the fighting on battlefronts of an exampled length, by night as well as by day, and in stormy and wintry as well as moderate weather, make possible, has proved to be beyond all power of computation, and could not have been imagined in advance, never before has there been any approach to the vast killing and crippling of men the destruction of all sorts of man's structures buildings, bridges, viaducts, vessels, and docks and the physical ruin of countless women and children, on the seas vessels and cargoes are sunk, instead of being carried into port as formerly, through the ravaging of immense areas of crop-producing lands, the driving away of the people that lived on them, and the dislocation of commerce. The food supplies for millions of non-combatants are so reduced that the rising generation in several countries is impaired on a scale never approached in any previous war. In any country which becomes the seat of war an immense destruction of fixed capital is wrought, and at the same time the quick capital of all the combatants, accumulated during generations, is thrown into the furnace of war and consumed improductively. In consequence of the enormous size of the national armies and the withdrawal of the able-bodied men from productive industries, 
the industries and commerce of the whole world are seriously interrupted, once widespread, incalculable losses to mankind. These few months of war have emphasized the interdependence of nations the world over with a stress never before equaled. Neutral nations far removed from Europe have felt keenly the effects of the war on the industries and trades by which they live. Men see in this instance that whatever reduces the buying and consuming capacity of one nation will probably reduce also the producing and selling capacity of other nations, and that the gains of commerce and trade are normally mutual, and not one-sided. All the contending nations have issued huge loans which will impose heavy burdens on future generations, and the yield of the first loans has already been spent or pledged. The first loan issued by the British government was nearly twice the national debt of the United States, and it is supposed that its proceeds will be all spent before next summer. Germany has already spent one area code 600000000 since the war broke out all unproductively and most of it for destruction. She will soon have to issue her second great loan. In short, the waste and ruin have been without precedent. The destruction of wealth has been enormous, and the resulting dislocations of finance, industries, and commerce will long afflict the coming generations in all the belligerent nations. All the belligerent nations have already demonstrated that neither urban life, nor the factory system, nor yet corroding luxury has caused in them any physical or moral deterioration which interferes with their fighting capacity. The soldiers of these civilized peoples are just as ready for hand-to-hand encounters with cold steel as any barbarians or savages have ever been. The primitive combative instincts remain in full force and can be brought into play by all the belligerents with facility. The progress of the war should have removed any delusions on this subject which Germany, Austria-Hungary, or any one of the Allies may have entertained. The Belgians, a well-to-do town people, and the Serbians, a poor rural population, best illustrate this continuity of the martial qualities, for the Belgians faced overwhelming odds, and the Serbians have twice driven back large Austrian forces, although they had a transport by oxen only, an elementary commissariat, no medical or surgical supplies to speak of, and scanty munitions of war. On the other hand, The principal combatants have proved that with money enough they can all use effectively the new methods of war administration and the new implements for destruction. These facts suggest that the war might be much prolonged without yielding any results more decisive than those it has already yielded, indeed, that its most probable outcome is a stalemate unless new combatants enter the field. Fear of Russian invasion seemed at first to prompt Germany to war, but now Germany has amply demonstrated that she has no reason to look with any keen apprehension on possible Russian aggression upon her territory, and that her military organization is adequate for defense against any attack from any quarter. The military experience of the last seven months proves that the defense, by the temporary entrenchment method, has a great advantage over the attack so that in future wars the aggressor will always be liable to find himself at a serious disadvantage, even if his victim is imperfectly prepared. These same pregnant months have also proved that armies can be assembled and put into the field in effective condition in a much shorter time than has heretofore been supposed to be possible, provided there be plenty of money to meet the cost of equipment, transportation, and supplies. Hence, the advantages of maintaining huge active armies ready for instant attack or defense, will hereafter be less considerable than they have been supposed to be if the declaration of war by surprise, as in August last, can hereafter be prevented. These considerations, taken in connection with the probable inefficacy against modern artillery of elaborate fortifications, 
suggest the possibility of a reduction throughout Europe of the peace-footing armies. It is conceivable that the Swiss militia system should satisfy the future needs of most of the European states. Another important result of the colossal war has been achieved in these seven months. It has been demonstrated that no single nation in any part of the world can dominate the other nations, or, indeed, any other nation, unless the other principal powers consent to that domination, and, in the present state of the world, it is quite clear that no such domination will be consented to. As soon as this proposition is accepted by all the combatants, this war, and perhaps all war between civilized nations, will cease. It is obvious that in the interest of mankind the war ought not to cease until Germany is convinced that her ambition for empire in Europe and the world cannot be gratified. Deutschland Weber Ulfs can survive as a shout of patriotic enthusiasm, but as a maxim of international policy it is dead already, and should be buried out of the sight and memory of men. It has, moreover, become plain that the progress in civilization of the white race is to depend not on the supreme power of any one nation, forcing its peculiar civilization on other nations, but on the peaceful development of many different nationalities, each making contributions of its own to the progress of the whole, and each developing a social, industrial, and governmental order of its own, sweet to its territory, traditions, resources, and natural capacities. The chronic irritations in Europe which contributed to the outbreak of the war and the war itself had emphasized the value and the toughness of natural national units, both large and small, and the inexpediency of artificially dividing such units, or of forcing natural units into unnatural associations. These principles are now firmly established in the public opinion of Europe and America, no matter how much longer the present war may last. No settlement will afford any prospect of lasting peace in Europe which does not take just account of these principles. Already the war has demonstrated that just consideration of national feelings, racial kinship, and common commercial interests would lead to three fresh groupings in Europe one of the Scandinavian countries, one of the three sections into which Poland has been divided, and one of the Balkan states which had a strong sense of Slavic kinship. In the case of Scandinavia and the Balkan states the bond might be nothing more than a common tariff with common ports and harbor regulations, but Poland needs to be reconstructed as a separate kingdom, thoroughly to remove political sores which had been running for more than 40 years. The people of Schleswig-Holstein and Alsace-Lorraine should also be allowed to determine by free vote their national allegiance, whether the war ends in victory for the Allies, or in a draw or deadlock with neither party victorious and neither humiliated. These new national adjustments will be necessary to permanent peace in Europe. All the wars in Europe since 1864 unite in demonstrating that necessity. Again, the war has already demonstrated that colonies or colonial possessions in remote parts of the world are not a source of strength to a European nation when at war, unless that nation is strong on the seas. Affiliated commonwealths may be a support to the mother country, but colonies held by force in exclusive possession are not. Great Britain learned much in 1775 about the management of colonies, and again she learned in India that the policy of exploitation, long pursued by the East India Company, had become undesirable from every point of view. As the strongest naval power in the world, Great Britain has given an admirable example of the right use of power in making the seas and harbors of the world free to the mercantile marine of all the nations with which she competes. Her free trade policy helped her to a wise action on the subject of commercial extension. Nevertheless, the other commercial nations, watching the tremendous power in war which Great Britain possesses through her wide, though not complete, control of the oceans, 
will rejoice when British control, though limited and wisely used, is replaced by an unlimited international control. This is one of the most valuable lessons of the Great War. Another conviction is strongly impressed upon the commercial nations of the world by the developments of seven months of extensive fighting by land and sea, namely, the importance of making free to all nations the Kiel Canal and the passage from the Black Sea to the Aegean, so long as one nation holds the Dardanelles and the Bosporus, and another nation holds the short route from the Baltic to the North Sea. There will be dangerous restrictions on the commerce of the world dangerous in the sense of provoking to a war, or of causing sores which develop into malignant disease. Those two channels should be used for the common benefit of mankind, just as the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal is intended to be. Free seas, free interocean canals and straits, the open door, and free competition in international trade are needed securities for peace. These lessons of the war are as plain now as they will be after six months or six years more fighting. Can the belligerent nations and particularly Germany take them to heart now? Or must more millions of men be slaughtered and more billions of human savings be consumed before these teachings of seven fearful months be accepted? For a great attainable object such dreadful losses and sufferings as continuation of the war entails might perhaps be borne. But the last seven months have proved that the objects with which Austria, Hungary and Germany went to war are unattainable in the present state of Europe. Austria, Hungary, even with the active aid of Germany and Turkey, cannot prevail in Serbia against the active or passive resistance of Serbia, Russia, Romania, Greece, Italy, France, and Great Britain. Germany cannot crush France supported by Great Britain and Russia, or keep Belgium, except as a subject and hostile province and in defiance of the public opinion of the civilized world. In seven months Great Britain and France had made up for their lack of preparedness and had brought the military operations of Germany in France to a standstill. On the other hand, Great Britain and France must already realize that they cannot drive the German armies out of France and Belgium without a sacrifice of blood and treasure from which the stoutest hearts may well shrink. Has not the war already demonstrated that jealous and hostile coalitions armed to the teeth will surely bring on Europe not peace and advancing civilization, but savage war and an arrest of civilization? Has it not already proved that Europe needs one comprehensive union or federation competent to procure and keep for Europe peace through justice? There is no alternative except more war. Charles W. Eliot, Belgium's King and Queen by Paul H. Eu Translation by Florence Simmons. From King Albert's book. Once upon a time there lived a king and a queen. Indeed, it would be the most touching and edifying fairy tale imaginable. This true story of H.M. Albert I and H.M. Queen Elizabeth. It would tell of their quiet and noble devotion to their daily tasks. Of the purity of their happy family life. Suddenly, the devil would intervene. With his threats and his offers. Then we should hear of the sovereigns and the people of Belgium agreeing at once in their sense of honor and heroism. Then the dastardly invasion and the innumerable host of infernal spirits breathing out sulfur, belching torrents of iron, and raining fire, city dwellings transformed into the shattered columns of cemeteries, innocent creatures tortured and victimized, and the king and queen with their kingdom reduced to a sandhill on the shore, and the remnant of their valiant army around them, and at last, at last, that turn of the tide which all humanity worthy of the name desires so ardently, and which even the baser sort now sees to be surely approaching, at this point in the story, at this page of the legendary tale, how the children would clap their hands, with all that love of justice innate in children, and how the faces of worthy parents would beam with the approval of satisfied consciences, and in the future, 
those who contemplate the royal arms with the pious admiration due to them, will see a blooming rose side by side with the Lion of Belgium, typifying the immortal share of H.M. Queen Elizabeth in the glory of H.M. Albert I. The European War A.S. seen by cartoonists German cartoon The American Protest Illustration, from Lustige Blader, Berlin, John Bull, now, what's he throwing at me for? A little bit of piracy is no reason for getting bad-tempered. French cartoon The Peasant and the War Illustration, from Rire, Paris, confound their infernal shells. If a feller didn't have to work it would be better to stay home these days. German cartoon Victory, illustration, from Lustige Blader, Berlin. This cartoon was published on the Kaiser's birthday, January 27, 1915. English cartoon, The Outcast, The Dream of a Madman Night Scene in Trafalgar Square Illustration, from Lustige Blader, Berlin. Goddamn, Mr. Nelson, what are you looking for down here? Well, just suppose you stay up there for a while among the Zeppelins yourself. English cartoon The Riddle of the Sands Illustration, from Punch, London.